uh, that takes us to the book of Matthew chapter 5, and uh, uh, Matthew chapter 5, if you're using a pew Bible in front of you, that's on page uh, 915, uh, 915, Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 to 42. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read verse 20. And then I'm going to drop down to verse 38. Verse 20 is kind of like the, the thesis, uh, the main idea, proposition of the sermon. And he provides five illustrations of what he is trying to emphasize. And so we're going to read in verse 20. It says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 38, a fourth illustration, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, uh, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, let go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. In an earlier sermon, I had uh, made this statement about anger, that anger is not on its own a sinful emotion. Anger has a purpose in our humanity. God is angry, but yet he doesn't commit sin. And anger is an emotion that's designed to move us towards reconciliation of that which we see to be unjust. Uh, anger flares when we see things that uh, should not be. And we're, it's a strong emotion. But for sinful people like us to satisfy ourselves in a manner that we would want to be satisfied by our anger often does not honor God's law at all. Uh, James says, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And anger can be like a viper's nest if it's not resolved properly. Like a nest of vipers, anger has some unruly offspring, like resentment and bitterness and hostility and strife, hatred. Anger, if it's not resolved properly, will produce a whole host of problems in our human relationships. And so it's really important that we, we deal with anger properly. Uh, it's said that a rattlesnake actually, changing different from a viper to a rattlesnake here, but it's said that a, rat, a rattlesnake, if cornered, will sometimes become so upset that it will bite itself. And that's exactly what unresolved anger can do. It turns into harboring hate, bearing grudges against other people, and we think that we're being proactive with our anger, but we're in effect hurting ourselves. And it's so important that we 
recognize that hurt people, people who are hurt themselves, will have a tendency to hurt other people. And so we have to deal with this. And we often think that we're harming others, perhaps, by holding on to these grudges. In reality, we are indeed hurting ourselves, but potentially we can harm others indirectly through grudges, resentment, bitterness, and then violence can break out as well. Often, these occur because we distrust God's system of justice to deal with what we see as unjust. And we think that we have to handle it on our own. And in this fourth illustration, Jesus is trying to teach us that living honestly before God's law and His system of justice ought to propel us towards mercy rather than anger and attack. Now, I know that some people, when they are feeling that sense of anger and they want to retaliate, not all people will retaliate. Some people withdraw from relationships, and that's a form of attack as well. And Jesus is teaching us that a greater righteousness is needed to enter into the kingdom of heaven, a greater righteousness than that which is opposed to anger itself, to lust, to adultery, to deceit. And now I believe Jesus is trying to draw our attention to the necessity of dealing with bitterness that occurs within our hearts. Bitterness. And in the process, he's teaching us to be honest before God's law, to, to, really, to really recognize what God's law is communicating about ourselves and the need to submit to his timetable in dealing with un- injustices. You see, all of humanity falls short of the glory of God. We all fall short. And the law is not something that we replace. It's something that we humble ourselves before. And we look to the cross for the righteousness that we can't produce in ourselves. So Jesus, I believe here, I'm gonna, we're going to work through this, this text, uh, this little short illustration, and we're going to try to look at what he's communicating to us about the need for sincerity of faith in God, and a sincere faith in God trusts Him to execute justice on our behalf. Really important for us to understand this truth. Uh, some people have, when they get to these last two illustrations, there's not quite a, it, it seems like a more apparent replacement of the Old Testament law. It appears even stronger that Jesus is instituting some new kind of law of His own, and Jesus is not replacing the law, he's exposing the ethic of love that is necessary to live rightly in front of God's law. The law does not uh, prohibit us from loving others as we would want to be loved ourselves. And Jesus is also in this process showing us that we have to also trust God himself to execute justice on our behalf. So let's look at the bare bones of the commandment that we have before us in verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is a little snippet, a little snippet that comes out of the Mosaic Law, first five books of of the Old Testament. And uh, it's not a direct quotation of the Ten Commandments themselves. And uh, I want to show you, first of all, God's purpose 
in uh, this famous piece of legislation, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And then I'm going to show you how it relates to the commandments themselves. And as we consider the bare bones of this, we need to recognize that uh, there is God values justice, and he wants to we have to satisfy justice with appropriate punishments, with appropriate punishments, not inappropriate. Um, some who are in the field of law, or perhaps you've heard this phrase before, lex talionis, it is, a, it is a word, phrase that simply means that every law should have a punishment that is proportionate to the crime that's been committed. It's something that is weaved throughout our jurisprudence, our law, and our society. At least just laws will emulate this principle. And it comes out of the Old Testament. Um, it comes after Moses handed down the Ten Commandments. He gave another series of illustrations. He gave the Ten Commandments. A couple Sundays ago, we talked about how that they're like primary colors. You mix and match them, and then you can assess, assess how to live life based upon the Ten Commandments. Well, chapters 21 through 24 of Exodus, Moses gives illustrations of how this is done. He illustrates different, different things that would occur within the Jewish life and how to apply the Ten Commandments and make just judgments. And we find this phrase... An eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, it comes up after the handing down of the Ten Commandments. Now, when you, I think maybe it would be helpful if we actually turned in our Bibles to Exodus 21 and to see these for ourselves and not just hear, hear them expressed. But I want you to see Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments are given. In chapter 21, we see different laws about uh, states of, of society. And then you come, you, there's all kinds of instructions about whoever strikes a person, what should be, happen to them, and, and you give different examples of how to apply out the Ten Commandments. And you come down to verse 21, uh, verse 22 rather, through 25, and we see this, that when, a man, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her child comes out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, and as the woman's husband shall impose upon him, and if he shall pay as the judges determine, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. You see, what the judge is supposed to do is look at the situation and say, well, there is definitely harm taking place here to this individual. There is a victim. How is this going to be compensated so that justice and equalization of the crime and payment might be had? And he has to do some evaluative work to make sure that it's fair and consistent. Now, when we look at a phrase like an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, our minds often associate, that sounds really harsh. 
that sounds like really heavy. If someone cuts out an eye, do you mean you actually should cut out the eye of the other person? And that seems awful heavy. But the intention is not to be negative, but it's actually intended to be positive. Because God knows the human heart. The human heart often wants revenge, and we often go excessive in what we demand for reconciliation. As human beings, we want a severe retribution for that which perhaps is not as heavy as, as what we should be asking for. Another is to make sure that there's no self-appointed vigilanteism. So if someone, well, I'm going to illustrate both of these in just a moment, but first, if you, let's say someone steals one of your Skittles. I know this is kind of a silly illustration, but if someone steals one of your Skittles, is it just to take off their fingernail? How about their hand? That would be extremely excessive, although you might feel like taking their fingernail off for taking your Skittle. In Sharia law, you may, be, may not realize this, but if there was designated the removal of a hand, if you took a valuation of $100 or more from someone, that might appear excessive because you're just now suddenly limiting this person's ability to make income with their life when they could simply restitute something of value of $100. And so... God, in His mercy, was designing law so that it would be fairly applied. Um, you think about this as well. You know, it's important to, to, to rise to the level of justice as well. If a judge meets out something that's just simply too lenient, what might happen inside the person who has been the victim? They may want to make it rise to the level. They may actually take it upon themselves to go and corner that person and shoot their toe or shoot them through the body for a crime that they've committed. And so what, what the law did, it was preserved order, but it also revealed and exposed the human heart. And this principle of the, of the punishment to fit the crime, it pops up actually throughout through Leviticus and through De Deuteronomy. And uh, I want us to see how the Bible is also encouraging us to recognize the vertical and horizontal justice that's so necessary uh, for order in this world. Let's turn to Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 19, that's uh, the fifth book in the flow of Scripture. Deuteronomy. 19. And Moses brings up the law of proportional punishment in the context of violating the ninth commandment. So, we saw an example in which a baby is injured, and now we're moving towards actual the commandments and how this is fairly applied. And uh, in chapter 19, um, as we look at this, we see verse 15, uh, we have a description of witnesses and the possibility of someone bearing false witness against another. And uh, 
Let's read verse 15. It says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime, for any wrong, in connection with any offense he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity, it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And Moses, as he's writing this, is showing that the horizontal relationship needs to be just before God. And if a person was attempting to frame another as a false witness so that they are put away and have to endure a punishment, like, for example, uh, in our modern context, there might be a situation where someone is trying to frame another for conspiracy, which in itself might have a punishment of life imprisonment. If fair reading of justice would be that if it was known that conspiracy against another person was found to be the case and there was a false attempt to frame them, that person would go to life in prison. So what, what, what is being communicated is the need to repay those who, re repay those who have broken uh, the law of God horizontally and tried to affect others. Um, but I think it's important for us, us to see how this isn't just a matter of dealing with justice on a person-to-person -person level. This is also how God operates vertically with us. So let's turn with us ourselves to uh, Leviticus. We're going to go back one book to Leviticus chapter 24. In Leviticus chapter 24, we're not going to read all of these verses, uh, 10 through 23. Uh, there's a discussion again of, of, of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But what's remarkable is that this is done in a context vertically with God, not just horizontally. The book of Leviticus is actually known for a couple of interesting things, uh, burnt sacrifices and also skin diseases. If you read through it, you'll come across a long section about the high priest examining people's skin and determining whether or not they're clean or unclean. And as you're going through it, it may be very shocking to see it. But uh, the priesthood had high responsibility to mete out justice and also to understand uh, the health of their community. But in Leviticus 24, there's a situation that comes up in which there is fighting in the camp. There is a young person who is in a hand-to-hand -hand fight with another uh, a, a man who's older than himself. And in the process, the young man uh, starts cursing and taking God's name in vain. And they, they take them 
and they separate them. They put the one who has blasphemed the name of God, and they, set, they put him aside. And notice in verse 13, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who is cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin, and whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. And all the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Whoever takes a human life shall be put to death, and whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good. Life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. Now, does this strike you as perhaps disproportionate? They're stoning someone who took God's name in vain and has blasphemed the name of God? It probably would strike us as being completely out of step, but the, probably the realization is that we would tend to go in this direction because we have a very narrow view of God Himself. God is infinitely holy. And there's two prescriptions for death. Death that defames Him and His name, and death for those who take the life of an image bearer of God. Both of those items are significantly elevated and requires a life for def defamation of God's holy character. I mean, I think often we go to the Old Testament and we say, well, that just seems completely out of step. How could God be that concerned? And it might be that we have such a low view of our own sin that we realize that when we, we do sin, we're not taking into account His infinite holiness and the crime that's committed against Him. I mean, if you, throughout the sacrificial system, there was, there was a, atonements available for crimes that were committed. And we what, what is it, what is possible, you know, how can we atone for crimes that we have committed against God? Even at the cost of my own life, my own life is inadequate for the sins that I commit against God. It's one thing to murder someone horizontally or to attack someone horizontally, but even at the cost of my own life, because I'm finite, it's insufficient to atone for the sins that I have committed against God. Payment is immortality in hell fire itself, being punished and enduring 
that for eternity. But wait a second, isn't God love? Why doesn't he just simply replace this legal system that he's created with love and mercy and grace? Well, the truth of the matter about God's character is he cannot do that which is contrary to his nature. God has to equalize sins that have been committed with payments that have to be made. And this is where living honestly before God's law is so vital for eternal life. And this is where we come back now towards the Sermon on the Mount. We're unfamiliar with some of these laws. Jesus is speaking to Jewish people who are very familiar with the law of God. We're the ones who need to really consider the claims of Jesus. He's saying it is impossible for you to enter into the presence of a holy God on your own righteousness. It's not possible for you to atone and make good the crimes that you have committed against God. But what, what did King David do? Well, King David turned from his acts of murder. He turned from his adultery. He was openly honest about his falling short of the glory of God, his inability to make payment for his own sin. Honesty before the law is critical for acceptance with God himself. But, but how, 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 does this, how does this legal thing get reconciled? Well, it comes about by the cross. Romans 5, 8 says, but God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, that is, his enemies, Christ died for us. He paid the penalty for all of our sin with his infinite life. We have a finite life. We can't pay for the crimes we have committed against God. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses from all sin. And this is the glory of the gospel. Jesus had an infinite holiness, and his willing self-sacrifice was accepted by God as just, so that he could then justify sinners, forgive sinners, to accept them. And what this does is it brings our souls into union with Christ. We become one with him. Christ becomes all of our hope, all of our, all of our expectation for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. God executed perfect justice on his son in our place. Now, it would be unjust if Jesus was not willing to take that on himself. We might be able to say, yeah, God's a horrific God. Why would he do that to his own son? But the reality is his own son voluntarily did it for us as a perfect display of love for us. So there is a legal requirement, but there is an ethic of love that pervades all of what God is doing in this world. God is going to carry out justice one way or another through the cross or through eternal punishment, but He also makes provision for us through His Son, through the principle of love for the world. Now, we're going to come back. Let's go back to the Sermon on the Mount and see 
how, what Jesus is getting to here in terms of restitution. In verse 38 through 42 of chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, we see that the flesh and tissue of the command is actually to act justly, to love mercy, and walk humbly. In verse 39, Jesus says, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Do not resist the one who is evil. Jesus is saying that you're going to encounter bad people in this world, and they're going to do bad things to you. People who are intent on making your life miserable. Don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying don't stand up for good in principle. It's not what he's saying. And he's not saying, you know, he's not saying don't protect other people because that's important for people to interpose themselves to protect other people. Jesus is here saying that it's important to allow yourself not to experience vindication, but to allow God to vindicate for you. I mean, how do people who have lost their good name? I mean, people, people all the time are slandered. Perhaps they're lost, they lose their savings and someone swindles them out of money. Maybe they've lost a loved one to a tragic accident. How is it, how is it possible to not to retaliate, let alone to do good to those who hurt you and dis despise you? I'm still learning how to do this myself. I don't, I don't have this all together. I have to be honest with you. I'm still also underneath of the law, and I'm trying to figure out how to do this as well. But there are a couple things that we have to remember principle-wise in order to be able to do the, the things that he gives us as illustrations about turning the other cheek and whatnot. And the first is this. We must really believe that God will execute his system of justice. We've got to really, really believe that God does not allow sin to go unpunished. Otherwise, we're going to be tempted to go and do it ourselves. I mean, human systems of justice do fail. They are not perfect systems to execute justice on our behalf. That is certain. But God's system of justice, it never fails. You know, we might live to 80 years, if we're lucky, maybe 70 years, and in our lifetime, we're going to experience a lot of difficulties, a lot of injustices, and, but we don't live into another millennium. God is the one who transcends every generation, and He is the one who will not clear the guilty of their sin. Recently, we have worked through the book of Jonah and the book of Nahum on midweek. Jonah was a very reluctant prophet. He didn't want to preach the good news to the people of Nineveh. He knew he could read the political events. He knew that eventually his own people were going to be run over by that city-state. He knew that there was going to be horrendous, horrendous things committed against his people. But 80 years after Jonah went and preached the good news to those people, God eventually brought the justice that Jonah was looking for. 
God eventually brought it. In Nahum 1 verse 3, we read these words, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. But, but wait a second. What if people repent? What if they turn from their sins? How is God going to by no means clear the guilty? How is he going to get, get the score leveled out? The score is leveled out in Christ for those who repent. Those who refuse to repent are going to experience God's leveling in eternity. We've got to really believe that God mercifully carved out a way of escape for those who repent and turn from their sins. I mean, you can't, you can't really live out the ethic that Jesus commands here if you don't believe that he is going to punish sin, and also he makes a way of escape. See, grudges, resentments, bitterness, hatred occur when people distrust God's system of justice. But if you believe that God will perfectly vindicate things that have committed against you, you will also believe that he has graciously exempted you from eternal punishment. You know, it's so important to believe both sides of the gospel. The gospel gives us the opportunity of relief from punishment, but the gospel also tells us that there is certain punishment for those who do not believe the gospel. If we don't believe in God's system of justice, we're going to be like that rattlesnake that bites itself. And it's a very destructive way to live. And yet Jesus offers four illustrations of living with the confidence that God will vindicate and that God forgives those who sin. And these four illustrations, in fact, were modeled by Jesus Christ in his own life. Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything he wasn't willing to do himself. Just first, first thing that he, he commands of us, he says in verse 30, um, 39, the last half, it says, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. To slap a person on the cheek was a very serious uh, offense. Uh, it was humiliation. Um, it, to slap with... With the back of your hand to someone's right cheek is how it would occur in a, in a, in a public setting. It was kind of like dueling, you know. You, you'd go and you'd accuse someone and you'd slap them. And if it was an unjust thing, what would you do? How would you be vindicated? Well, Jesus says, turn to, turn to them the other cheek. Let them slap that one as well. <laughs> but, but Jesus didn't ask us to do anything he wasn't willing to do. Isaiah 50 verse 6 says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. He trusted his heavenly father to vindicate him. Jesus in verse 40 says, allow yourself to forgo your personal rights. Personal rights. In verse 40 we have this another illustration 
Uh, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, then let him have your cloak as well. The Mosaic Law had specific humanitarian rights for people. You couldn't take their outer garment because if they had nothing, at least they should have something to warm themselves in the open air. This was a humanitarian right, kind of like how we think of our Second Amendment right, right? You can't take that from me. Well, here, Jesus is saying, forego even your personal rights. Jesus was teaching his disciples to be willing to be wronged and to be defrauded. And Jesus gave up his own clothing, did he not? He even hung naked upon the cross. And he observed them casting lots, dice, for his own clothes. He could have called 10,000 angels in that moment, couldn't he? The third illustration he gives in verse 41 uh, says, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. And so, Jesus is saying, surpass the minimum legal requirement placed upon you. Do more. Roman law is being referred to here, and the Jews hated the Roman law. They hated the fact that uh, a soldier could commandeer them to carry their armor a distance. It was, it was oppressive, yes. Forced labor is always oppressive. But in this case, he encouraged them to go a second mile. Jesus, again, would have, I believe, carried his cross all the way to the hill. Of course, his physical frame couldn't make it that far, but he attempted to. He carried a burden. The fourth illustration, verse 42, says, Give to one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is a provision in the law not to withhold loans from people who are in need of a loan to try to get back on their feet. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty high risk. Maybe they have shown in the past that they haven't been very successful to manage their own resources, and yet the law had commanded, if your brother asks for assistance, make sure you, you help them. It's a remarkable statement of the need of generosity. And it challenges our own instincts, especially when there are those who call us and we know that there is a calling campaign to, to seek resources. But you know what? Jesus healed a woman, a woman who had spent all that she had on doctors. She, she spent everything she had because she had this issue of blood for 12 years and she couldn't find remedy and she, she came up and she touched the cloak of Jesus, and she was instantly healed as power went out of, from her, from him. Jesus was so exhausted at times, he had to get away and he had to sleep at the bottom of a boat in the midst of a storm just to recover from all of the, the giving out that he had been doing. Now, I know wisdom is needed to be able to apply these things, these principles rightly, but the ethic, the ethic is love. The principle is love contrasted with a legal principle. You know, I say you have to use wisdom in this because there are some, some Protestant traditions that took this extremely literally. After the, 
after the Protestant Reformation, the Anabaptists uh, were reading this, and they said, if someone asks me for everything, I have to walk around naked. And they would. And, 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 and it's just a, the wrong way of reading this, uh, to take it in that sense. You've got to use some local wisdom, and you've got to make why you have to have some wise exceptions in the process to understand what's happening. I mean, I have, I have met with Christians who have observed this text, and they have decreased some of Paul's instruction about protecting the church. Protecting the church from those who would want to be like wolves and eat the church. Some people will say, well, I can't, I can't participate in a church discipline because I have to turn the other cheek. Well, no, I'm, there's obligations that we have to protect other people that are also involved in Scripture too. But the principle is love. Operating out of love in the midst of the realization that God will satisfy His legal system. In Micah 6, verse 8, we read this verse. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? You know, Jesus told a story once of a servant who, who had an overwhelming debt. An overwhelming debt. He told the story in three scenes. In the first scene, you see a man begging before a king. He has the most significant debt. He has basically 150 years worth of wages owing to this king. And the king forgives him and says, I absolve you from the responsibility of paying this debt to me. A second scene presents a similar scenario, but in this case there is two servants talking to one another. The servant who was just forgiven 150 years worth of wages is trying to exact a hundred days wages from another servant. And he starts beating him and berating him and trying to make him make his payment. This is the one who had just been forgiven 150 years worth of wages. But then there was a third scene which casts a really dark, dark picture Word gets back to the king. The other servants see what's going on and say, this is, this is just not just. This man has just been forgiven so much. Why can't he then forgive others? And the king responds with quite sobering words that he is going to be imprisoned for the rest of his life until he can pay back the 150 years worth of wages. And Jesus reflects on that story that he told. He says, so my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. See, the rattlesnake and the unforgiving servant do share something in common. Neither one realizes the damage that they will inflict upon themselves by their actions. See, whether a person withdraws and holds a grudge internally or they go on the warpath and attack others, they're hurting and then they're hurting other people. 
They're not living honestly before the law, which gives them freedom and release from all their sins so that they can then forgive others of their sins. And Jesus is saying, unless your righteousness exceed that of the scribe and the Pharisee, you'll never enter into the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is moving along in his illustration saying, look, you need to have an ethic of love now that will believe in God's system of justice and not require. That's a sincere faith. That is what will get you into the kingdom of heaven. A sincere faith in God trusts him to execute justice on our behalf. See, we have to live honestly before God's law. We need to recognize our own need for grace. And we then need to live out of that grace to be gracious to other people. This is how God calls us to live as Christians. And if anyone thinks that they have this perfect, you need to stop and recognize you also now, again, still need to be honest before God's law. This is a continual habit of growth and development 